Okay, perhaps we should begin. The goal of this path that the Buddha conceives of is a goal which is awakening, to wake up. Even the epithet of the founder of this particular approach, this particular way, which we call Buddhism, the Buddha, um, the Buddha is not enlightened, he's awakened. He's one who's woken up. It's a challenge to you and I, it's a challenge to all of us to move from, if you like, a, a somnolence, a sleepiness, to beginning to wake up. Or to put it in a slightly different way, to move from forgetting to remembering. This is the movement we're attempting to make. When we forget and when we are asleep, those three unwholesome roots that I spoke about very briefly last night and mentioned again this morning, the unwholesome, unskillful roots of greed, aversion and delusion, actually have much more prominence in the state of forgetfulness, in the state of you know, non-wakefulness. When we forget in that way, we fall back into probably those three roots of our psychological states as, as just big bad habits. You know, this is what we do. You know, I don't think most of us set out particularly to be greedy. Most of us don't set out particularly to be aversive. These things happen. And certainly we don't choose to be confused. This happens through a sort of forgetfulness, a lack of wakefulness. To wake up, therefore, is the goal. And it's quite a challenge to wake up, because what we're waking up to according to the Buddha, is the way things are. Notice, I'll just say that again, we wake up to the way things are, not to the way we would like them to be. So there's a kind of realism, basically at the heart of what's been spoken about here. A realism about life and the way life unfolds that isn't anything to do with fantasy. So waking up isn't easy, because actually one of the things we often like to be is in a state of forgetfulness. Um, we like to evade and to escape and perhaps fall asleep to some of those realities which deep down, probably heart of hearts, we know are unavoidable, inescapable. You know, the, the ravages of time, we live temporal lives caught up in time, and time has an erosive effect. Uh, we wake up to the fact of being mortal beings, beings that are going to die eventually. So it means taking on board a lot of the things, perhaps I'm suggesting that we might attempt to evade either consciously or certainly unconsciously in our lives. This is what we're waking up to. And the Buddha, throughout his teaching career, which is a very, very long teaching career of 45 years, 
speaks throughout that career about these things, speaks about impermanence again and again and again. Often you feel when you're going through these texts, somehow, you know, he's making the point perhaps a little bit too hard, a little bit too strong, if you haven't quite got it. Well, probably we haven't. That's the problem. Uh, we haven't quite got the point. We haven't quite got the point that things are impermanent. Even at the end of his life, and I've said this so many times in this room, but I'll say it once more, even at the end of his life, he's still making the same point. His supposedly last recorded words are something like, absolutely everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. Now get on with it. Yeah. Basically, get on with your life in the face of impermanence. Get on with living that life. So we're waking up to that fact of impermanence. We're waking up. Perhaps, as I said, to put it in a slightly different way, we're learning to remember that there is impermanence at the heart of our lives. And there are many, many other difficult things that we will encounter within our lives. And sometimes in the state of forgetfulness, not only do we forget even the basic existential truths like impermanence and mortality, um, lack of fixity of anything, which is obviously the correlate of impermanence, but we also forget some fundamental aspects of our potentiality as well. When we fall back into habit, into reactiveness, into patterns, we often forget our potentiality for such things as kindness. We forget our potentiality for friendliness. We forget our potentiality for compassion. Sometimes we wake up and sometimes we remember, but quite often it's not so much a matter of not wanting to be friendly, compassionate and kind, just that we forget to be so. We get caught up in the speed of our existences, so much so that we forget some of these really, really important elements and potentials that all of us actually possess. So when one looks at the Buddha's teaching, one gets, well, seemingly, I would say, quite a lot of doom and gloom. Um, we get quite a lot of the diagnosis of the problem. We get a big, big diagnosis of why we give ourselves such the problems that we do. Uh, the Buddha isn't just interested in what happens to us being painful, but in the sense of how we exacerbate that pain, how we construct, we unfold, we narrativize around the events of our lives, the what is happening. And in some way in doing that, in the way that we construct our narratives, our lived experience, we, in a way, put that experience under a magnifying glass and often exacerbate, intensify the pain by the stories we tell ourselves about the what is happening. Particularly when things, as I've mentioned already a number of times today, particularly when things don't go our way, when they don't unfold, unfold in the way perhaps our fantasies would like them to unfold. Yeah. So waking up really has this sense of waking up out of this delusion of the fantasies of the way I'd like life to be and waking up to its realities. 
waking up also, and this is the other side of the coin that I really want to put very strongly this evening, waking up for our other potentialities of being, waking up to what you and I have within us. We obviously have a lot of potentiality for destructiveness. There is no doubt about that. We've only got to look at human beings over you know, its history, humanity over its history, to see that we have a tremendous potential for destructiveness. As I was mentioning last night, you've only got to look at you know, the current state of the world to see that potentially, potentiality being extremely manifested. Um, you know, when you just look at the news, what's going on in the world, you see that potentiality being manifested. This is news. It's usually bad news. We don't find the potentiality for the alternatives being lauded quite so much. The potentialities that we have for being able to be kinder, more compassionate, friendlier, more generous. These things which go by the name of virtues yeah, actually has a great link to a Sanskrit Pali word, which is the word virya. And the word virya was to actually have energy, which also mean, meant to be heroic. And even the notion of virtue as it comes out of Latin and Greek also has this notion of being, this sense of being somehow heroic in the face of the difficulties of life. So that everything is impermanent, everything you're going to encounter is impermanent, now get on with it, was actually the heroic, virtuous confrontation, the learning to be good or learning to be better in the face of the difficulties of life as they unfold. I think we all know <clears throat> when we're touched by kindness. We all know when we're touched by care and concern. You know, we know how healing these can be, yet often we forget to manifest them ourselves. I said earlier on today that this development of friendliness, which has been the theme of our day, and we've taken us so far through a number of meditations which have developed this or are helping to incline our minds towards it. Remember, not conjuring up anything that isn't there, not attempting to bring false emotions into being, but inclining our minds in a particular direction. This inclination of the mind can also be equated with a form of remembering. Yeah. To remember what is important. I equated it, coming back to where I started with this little digression, I equated this with actually what we call mindfulness as well. One of the chief qualities of being mindful that the Buddha so you know, lords as being such an important dimension of this path to waking up. One of the principal meanings of this term was actually to remember, to recollect. The Pali word, I'm not going to give you too many Pali words this evening, just a couple, but this one is extremely important. I've already used it today in relationship to metta, claiming that we have not two distinct things, 
sati, usually translated as mindfulness, and metta, often translated as loving-kindness, um, kind of misses the point a bit, uh, the term loving-kindness. This is not really what the Buddha is teaching. What he's teaching is this ability to befriend and to create a friendly attitude towards life and that which we encounter within, within our own personal lives and our encounters with others, including non-human others as well. So these are not two separate qualities, but in fact one quality that we're speaking about. And both have at their heart this sense of recollecting. Remember I was just been saying a little earlier in this talk, which is, it's not that we don't want to be kind. It's not that we don't want to be compassionate. It's not that we don't want often to be friendly. We're generally so caught up with our preoccupations, with our concerns, that we often forget. It's as simple as that. We live in this state of forgetfulness. We live in this state of somnolence. You know, like somnambulists walking around the world and wondering why we keep getting the same bruises on our body because we keep walking into the same things. Um, occasionally we might wake up. Occasionally we might wake up and peer around through one eye and then fall back asleep again. I'm kind of joking a little bit about this, but this is the task that the, the Buddha is laying upon us if we take it seriously as something worthy of investigation. As I say, we can often work to looking at the importance of these things, particularly these virtues, as we might call them, such as friendliness, kindness, gentleness, compassion, I don't need to keep running through the list. Um, but we know how important they are when they touch us. When we have been you know, touched by somebody who has compassion for our pain, somebody who acts in a friendly, more open, generous manner towards us. We know that. You know, we don't, in a sense, really need to be uh, perhaps given a lecture on why this is important. Yeah. We know those things. We know them heart of hearts. We know when we are touched by that. We know that somebody with generosity of spirit, with that abound, abundant sort of friendliness, um, we know it when that person who possesses those things walks into a room. Yeah. Um, in a sense, we almost gravitate like moths round the flame uh, when we appreciate that warmth and that kindness. And I'm sure most of us have come across people like that, somebody who touches us. It might be somebody personally or it might be a figure. One can pick a couple of figures out, um, such as uh, Nelson Mandela or the Dalai Lama. I mean, it's often the quality of their being is that warmth that compassion, that kindness. Um, but we also encounter it often in family, in friends, and often in strangers, in the, in sometimes in odd circumstances. You know? And so we know it's important by our very own experience when we, when we encounter it. 
So it's not as if it's alien to us. One of the beauties of what the Buddha speaks about is that we're developing things and cultivating. Remember this word I used last night, the sense of growing something. We're cultivating something which we know and often encounter for ourselves, albeit sometimes rarely. Yeah? So we're not, in a, sense, in a sense, attempting to import anything and develop anything that isn't there. We're not trying to create something out of nothing. Yeah? So when the Buddha speaks about the virtues that we can develop, or perhaps I would better use his phrase, when we can develop wholesome qualities, skillful qualities, that orient us to life in a totally different way, then we're not developing something out of nothing. They are there within our minds. They're there within this body-mind, without us having to, as I say, create something out of nothing. They are there already. Often undeveloped, often nascent. This path of waking up is waking those qualities up as well. It's not just waking up to a kind of cold staring at reality, but waking up qualities which reorient us in a much, much more skillful way towards that which we're going to encounter in our lives. And sometimes some of those encounters in our lives will be difficult. Sometimes they will be joyful. As I mentioned earlier today, the difficulties we're often trying to get rid of as quickly as possible. Yeah, we try to move them away. The, the good things that happen are the things we often want to cling to. We attach ourselves to them. We want to, in a way, make them permanent. Think of how futile that could be. You know, trying to make what is, in, what is actually impermanent, permanent. It takes a desperate amount of energy to be able to even try and affect what, to all intents and purposes, is a mere conjuring trick, even if you succeed for a little period of time of stabilizing something before it slips away. So this is not about just looking at the difficulties of life, but this is also looking at the good things that happen to us, the joys, the pleasures, you know, the enjoyments of our lives, um, but being realistic about them beginning to understand that everything, in a sense, is underwritten by time. Everything is underwritten by evanescence. Things are arising and falling and arising and falling. And we're often trying to stabilize one whilst pushing away the other. That which is pleasant, we try to stabilize and make into something permanent. That which is unpleasant, we try often to move away from. So part of the remembering Part of the waking up is waking up and remembering that that is the case. That we live in a world which is, which is really has its signature in, in impermanence, not impermanence. Yeah. The world is an impermanent phenomena. You and I and what happens to us are, is also impermanent. Now, I could go on about this for the rest of the evening, but I'm not going to. This is really just part of the preamble to where I want to get to. 
because the, the main part I'm really, really trying to get across to you is this sense of beginning to recollect, to begin to remember something that's important. And it becomes important to remember to incline our minds sometimes towards that which is much more skillful and that which is much more wholesome. When ordinary life takes over in its speediness, it's so easy, isn't it, just to exist in reactivity, to be caught up in reactive patterns um, because we don't get much thought time much time to reflect. And so we're dragged into that which we know. What do we know? We know habit. Yeah. That's where we often live, in habits. Sometimes we become aware of those habits, a lot of the time we're not. Um, within the current wave of secular forms of mindfulness, we often refer to this as an automatic pilot. That's how most of us exist, on automatic pilot not really encountering and not really acting, but simply reacting in the world. The Buddha is really asking a very serious question of us. He says, in a sense, and I'm paraphrasing because he doesn't say this directly, but in a sense this is the challenge that he's offering. Is he saying, is that really the way you want to live? Is that really the way you want to live? Do you want to live just in reactiveness? Yeah. It's easy to live in reactiveness. You don't have to give much thought to it. You don't have to put much energy into it, even, to live in reactiveness. And I'm sure we all know that. Yeah. Sometimes we, for example, do try to lift ourselves out of that reactiveness when we recognize it. Try to lift ourselves out of it. And when the going gets tough again, when life sort of intrudes, once again, as it often does, it erupts, doesn't it? Into, I mean, trying to do our best and suddenly it erupts again. And what do you do? You flee back to habit. Yeah. It's the known. It's the little safe house, in a sense. But the Buddha is asking that big question throughout his teaching. He's asking the question, do you want to live that way? Do you want to live in that sleep of confusion, that sleep of reactiveness? Do you want to live forgetting your potentiality that you have for living in much, much more creative, productive ways with a great deal of, well, how would I put it? I would put it this way, I suppose, with greater spaciousness in your life. Yeah. And the movement, the change is affected by beginning to wake up to some of the patterns that we see. And so we engage in this little experiment. Yeah. I consider a weekend like this to be coming to your laboratory for a weekend. Yeah. We don't often get a chance to do it at home, do we? That's why I referred to it as a gift last night. It's a gift you give yourself. Yeah. Go away and experiment for a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to take it deadly seriously. Yeah. Often experiments can go wrong. Um, often we... You know, get unpleasant results, but it's an experiment to see what happens. See what happens if you start to incline your mind, as we are this weekend, incline your mind towards metta, 
towards friendliness and initially starting with yourself. That can often be a big discovery for some people. Yeah? Actually, actively thinking, is it possible that I can invoke a friendlier attitude to who and what I am? Not an idealized version of what I'd like to be, but who and what I am at this moment. And that's quite a revolution. I don't know if you quite realize that. Um, but it's quite a revolution, isn't it, when we begin to become much more accepting. This doesn't mean to remain in that place forever, to become much more accepting of who and what you are at this moment, without projecting into the future, without grasping after a future, um, in some kind of idealized fantasy of who you would like to be. That often only creates greater distress. Yeah. I'm here at this moment in this state, which often includes not just joys, but often pains as well. Often includes the pains that come just through life, through living, through putting um, some of these things that occur to us under the magnifying glass yeah. by the narrations that we create, the narratives, the stories that we create around those things that have happened to us. Yeah. Creating um, greater pains out of the woundedness that we already have. Yeah. So this means to move into a place of friendly acceptance of this is where I am at this moment. Because underlying the Buddha's strategy for this waking up process is the movement from where you are, not the movement from where you would like to be. Yeah. Because the movement from where you'd like to be is already a fantasy. It's already some kind of idealization. And so this is a very, again, it's a realistic coming back to where we are. Coming back to this body, heart and mind, a phrase I've kept using in relationship to dropping these phrases and see what, what the resonances are within body, heart and mind. This body, heart and mind as it is at this moment in a strange sort of way, when we start talking about paths and you know, the Buddha's path and the Buddha's way and things like this, it almost sounds like a journey from A to B, doesn't it? Um, the, strange sort of, um, the strange sort of thing about this particular path is where you're trying to get to. Well, I'm trying to get to where I already am. <laughs> yeah. To wake up to where I already am. Yeah and thereby learn to wake up to the qualities and the potentialities that I possess at this moment. Not in some kind of idealized, putative future that might never occur, but where I am now with the qualities that I have now, but also with the foibles that I have, with my destructive tendencies, with my propensity to hold on to habitual ways of perceiving. And we learn to wake up, and this is not an easy process. The Buddha says it's entirely possible for everyone to do it. 
But the one thing he doesn't add in parenthesis is, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. This is not easy, but I can't personally think of anything more valuable than in a way beginning to move into this process of waking up. And upon, in this journey, sometimes we come upon little mini awakenings, don't we? When we wake up, as we sit there in meditation, perhaps on our cushion, engaging in our little experiment for the umpteenth time, and then we see, oh yes, gosh, I've seen that pattern before, as it comes round yet again, yeah. I remember I talked about the perfect organic recycling machine, you know, the human mind. Yeah. Well, sometimes it takes us, take us, takes us a while to wake up to seeing the pattern come round again. Here it comes. And I wake up to that. And somehow, in some of those little awakenings, when I begin to really see, there is a dropping away of that or less of a fixation on it. Because I've now moved into a different relationship with what I see. In fact, the position for any of this inquiry that in a sense you are asked, invited to take, is the position of the friendly observer. <coughs> Coming back to the most basic sense the most basic way of invoking one of these potentialities that we have, this potentiality for metta towards ourselves, is to move into this position of the friendly observer. Yeah. Who can watch what is happening in a much more dispassionate but friendly way. Yeah. It marks a big change, doesn't it? And I don't think we often get that sense of the, what's, what a huge change this is. And it doesn't sound a lot. If I just put it in kind of ordinary English, it doesn't sound a great deal to have made that movement from being caught up with all my habit patterns and my thought processes and my ways of behavior to suddenly being just asked to take a step back and to become an observer of those thought patterns, of the thinking process, of habits, and sometimes of forms of behavior. There's something we discover often in this journey as well, is that, let's just take a very simple example, that the observation that I take as the observer of anger, or fear, or anxiety, that position of the observer isn't angry or fearful or anxious. But it suddenly becomes into a friendlier relationship with those things, with the what is going on. So there's a clear sense of what is actually happening, what is transpiring at this moment. Yeah. And if it all gets too busy, if it all gets too much, then there is always a bringing back to something as a remembrance of where we are, which is the body and the breath. Here, right now, breathing, embodied. This is where we are. When all of that sometimes has the potentiality to become overwhelming. 
So we are learning in this most basic act. We are learning to remember. We are learning to recollect. But we are not going back into historical memory. We are not trawling the past. We are learning to remember what is here in the present. Sounds strange, doesn't it? It almost sounds like an oxymoron in English. Remembering the present. Yeah. But actually, when we forget that present, we forget often the what is going on, and we forget to, in a sense, to, to look at the potentialities that dwell in this moment for us. And those potentialities can be, for example, to step back into that friendlier, more compassionate gaze as a way of looking at what is actually happening for us at this moment. In our forgetting, that disappears. In fact, I just want to read, some of you have heard this before, I know, but I just want to read you a little quotation. It's not a Buddhist quotation, by the way. Um, it's actually a quotation from Milan Kundera, the author. And he says this, and this is particularly, I think, relevant to contemporary life as we live it. Speed, he says, the demon of speed, is often associated with forgetting, with avoidance and slowness with memory and confronting. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others and the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us and our ability to observe, to hear, to stop and to wonder. Society in its speed, wants to blow out the tiny flame of memory. Yeah. It's quite a powerful quotation, I think, and comes from, as I say, not somebody living two and a half thousand years ago, but somebody who's contemporary, who's living within our contemporary societies. But I think he touches on, in that little quotation, many of the themes that the Buddha is really trying to invoke with this use of the term sati, Mindfulness, learning to remember. What do we do? Well, let's take the most obvious thing. What do we do when we go out onto our walking path? We slow things down, don't we? We walk in a slower fashion. We're not speeding or rushing for the tube or the bus or whatever. We slow things down deliberately. What do we do when we sit on the cushion in this very deliberate, sometimes rather comical way? I often find, you know, sometimes I just have to smile when I think, think of myself sitting here. Yeah. It's artificial to a certain extent, but there is something that happens the moment we do this. Well, first of all, when we begin to palpate what's going on in thought, when we begin to touch what's going on in thought, it, happens to be, it seems to be going quite fast, doesn't it? Yeah. So much so that, um, again, something I've often quoted, that Bhante Gunaratna, one of the Sri Lankan meditation masters, said, this is meditation. Sit down, close your eyes, and welcome to the madhouse. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really good description of the, the beginner's mind when you encounter meditation. Um, you suddenly find there's a lot going on, and it's all happening quite fast, isn't it? 
all happen quite, quite fast. After a while, I don't say it gets particularly really slow, but it starts to slow down. There's something about the way that we sit that invokes the tendency for things to start to slow down. Not always, but with skill, with experience, with remembering to bring ourselves back from that future that we're often extending into. Probably some of you are already at home (laughs) at this moment, uh, or certainly on your journey home. Often to bring ourselves back from that past, and we use again what's happening in the present moment, the breath and the body as a way of anchoring ourselves, grounding ourselves in this present moment. When we begin to do that repeatedly, with mindfulness, to use the phrase that's often used, or to recollect, to come back to this present moment, then those thought processes which are happening start to slow down. That's when we begin to perceive the patterns, when we begin to perceive the narratives that we are often creating when we begin to perceive this tendency of the mind to want to spread out into the future, to obsess about things. There's a lovely word in Pali, probably again one of the only other Pali words I'll give you this evening, called papancha. The tendency of the mind to papancha, which means to spread out. It's like your thinking runs amok. It spreads out, it becomes obsessional. And we begin to see this when we sit in this artificial experiment, which we call meditation. Or better, when we start to sit and develop the ability to cultivate attention, a paying attention to what is actually happening, rather than to being distracted And if there is distraction there, somehow we recollect that there is distraction there. When there is the tendency of the mind to move into the future, we recollect this tendency of the mind to move into the future by coming back to the present. So we're constantly in a dialogue with the present and the tendency of the mind to move to these two other dimensions of temporality. past and future. Very rarely do we like to be here in this moment. It's like you could sort of knock on anybody at home, because we're out there in the future or back in the past. Often it's that movement that we have. So we're constantly recollecting, constantly bringing ourselves back. We don't do this, though, with a cold, staring cadaverizing gaze, what we do is we look at this with a kindliness. Sometimes I think just with a wry smile at this tendency of our minds to want to run off into the future, to want to go off and play basically a lot of the time, um, often inventing disaster scenarios and narratives. Um, As Mark Twain once said, 
my life has been full of manifold miseries, most of which have never happened. <laughs> yeah. So there's that tendency of the mind to want to go off and then you know, catastrophize in the future. Yeah. Or to rake over stuff in the past. And we can almost, as I say, when we recollect that with almost a smile in the mind's eye, yeah, it somehow brings us into a warmer, kinder relationship with that tendency of mind, doesn't it? Yeah. So just in this very basic attitude, I really probably don't want to go much further than that this evening, that, that basic attitude of coming into this kindlier relationship with who we are at this moment, with all of our problems, with all of our tendencies to move off into the future, to go back into the past, but just to come back to recollect at this moment. And that, as I say, if one does have it, um, if one does get that sense of slight amusement at this tendency of the mind to do that constantly, then we've already brought something much, much warmer much, much kinder to who we are at this moment in time. And I hope you can see, again, by almost by extrapolation, that if we can do that towards ourselves, then this tendency to observe others and the kind of tendency of others to run off and catastrophize in the future, or to be wallowing in the past, we can hold that a lot more differently. We can hold that a lot differently because of this tendency to hold ourselves differently here. In learning to accept ourselves, I'm not saying not change because this path is about change, but the change occurs from where we are, remember. So the first movement is the movement of kind acceptance of where we are. That means Accepting everything, everything that's going on, everything about you at this moment, which, again, without wishing to overstress it, can be very difficult because some of it is very painful. Yeah. We are the products of our history. As we sit here right now, in a sense, all of your temporality sits there right now. You are your past, your present and your future as you sit on your cushion at this moment, or sit on your chair. Yeah. You're the product of that past, which is in your future. And some of that will become, out of this present moment, your future, depending on how you mould and shape it. And so, it's important that we learn to come into some open acceptance, some kindly acceptance of where we are. And this means, in a sense, to perhaps have a lighter touch, even with meditation. Yeah. As a Sri Lankan friend of mine once said, um, looking upon, having, having taught in the West for a little bit, he, he said to me one day, he said, when I see Westerners, Westerners get meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. Because <laughs> it becomes something else they want to become perfect at. 
Yeah? That tendency to want to become perfect at this thing. It's like, when do I want perfection? Now. <laughs> yeah. And so what we're learning to also develop, again, is another potentiality, which is a potentiality of patience. Yeah. Patience. Um, patient acceptance of where and who we are. Now, from that basic act of remembering, this basic act which is uh, being used, I've kind of kept these words in, in abeyance until this moment. You know, I've mentioned them, but I want to invoke them again. Of the bringing together of sati, mindfulness, and metta, kindness and friendliness. They are not two separate things. You've heard me say that a number of times. They're not two separate things. They come into being with this basic act of recollection. This basic act of remembering who and what I am at this moment. Not as a fait accompli, and that's how it's always going to be, but as a place where I make movement from. Now the movement comes from, and particularly in the practice we're doing, in the practice of metta, from inclining your mind. Yeah, inclining your mind, almost in a behavioral gesture with the mind. So remember what I was saying this morning in talking about this practice of metta, this formalized practice and the way we're doing it by going through the various categories, including ourselves, and we'll keep on invoking ourselves within this, is that this becomes not about invoking false emotions, false sentiments, and manufacturing anything that isn't there. It's nothing about that at all. It's making a basic gesture with the mind towards a friendlier, kinder attitude, towards ourselves and towards categories that often it doesn't take a great deal of effort to. I'm sure probably with your good friend that you were invoking, one of the categories we've looked at today, it doesn't take a huge amount of effort to do that. Yeah. Towards ourselves, perhaps, often one of the most difficult categories of getting that basic good feeling towards ourselves. Yeah. But, in the absence of that, what are we doing? We're making this gesture with the mind. As the Buddha says in other contexts, that to which we repeatedly place our minds becomes the shape of that mind. Yeah. So, if in our normal lives, in our process of forgetting, in our unawakened state, we continuously place our minds on that which is unwholesome, that becomes the shape of our mind. That becomes the way it looks. In fact, it becomes the shape of your life. Because that mind isn't divorced from the way that you see things. Yeah. If I've constantly placed my mind on the negative, on the irritating, irritation being a low-grade form in a sense of aversion, which can at its highest level be hatred, but it's a low-grade version, there's a constant just nagging irritation with everything. That's how life is. It's irritating. That's my life. Yeah. And again, I think the Buddha is asking us the question, is that the way you want to live? Yeah. 
Do we want to constantly be placing our mind? We know, I'm sure we've all encountered people, perhaps including ourselves, who keep on just seeing the negative. Now, the one thing is really, really clear from contemporary neuroscience even, that the brain has a negative bias. Yeah, it retains negativities much easier. It had to, it was part of its evolutionary mechanism, wasn't it? Yeah, this brain that we have had a bias towards remembering things which were negative, things which were detrimental to survival. Yeah. So they imprinted very, very quickly. In fact, we don't have to make an effort. Yeah. I'm sure you can probably remember lots of negative events, usually about your partner and the way they've treated you and everything else. That Try remembering the positive things. It takes a bit more effort, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've ever, ever tried to do that. You know, the negative stuff strikes you. You can remember that. You don't have to make any effort. But you've got to really apply your mind to remember the positive qualities of a particular person. You know, the good things they've done, as well as the negative actions they've engaged in. Yeah. So we know that that's the case, that we, this mind has a negative bias. So to counteract that again, we have to make effort to remember to incline our minds. Yeah? Coming back to this theme of forgetting and remembering, in our act of forgetfulness, of course, the negativity will always surface. And so to, to move into more wholesome ways of understanding and being, we have to make an effort. And that effort is really in that process of remembering. So, again, just recollect what I said earlier on that it's not that we want to be unkind, but we forget to be kind to ourselves and to others. It's not that we want to be uncompassionate, but often the events in our lives and the habits are so dominant that we forget to be compassionate. Yeah. And so, Really, the message that's coming out of this, I hope, is one of the importance of learning to, in some ways, initially, deliberately invoke a sense of inclining one's mind in a particular way, even when it feels hard to do so. And it will feel hard, and it will, will feel unnatural. You know, have you ever tried to learn a new skill of anything? Yeah. It feels odd, doesn't it, when you try to do that? You know, it goes against what feels natural, and what feels natural is the habit. You know, to break any habit often means to engage in behaviours, including speech behaviours and physical behaviours, which go against that which feels natural. And that's, in a way, what we're doing here. We're beginning to train the mind. Sometimes we train the mind by engaging in even in physical activity. Yeah. One of the things that became very clear for me when I was living in the East um, was very much put across was that actually sometimes if you want to know what something feels like, actually do it. 
If you want to know what generosity feels like, engage in generous acts. If you want to know what compassion feels like, if it's not naturally there, engage in compassionate acts. So we're training ourselves by inclining the mind, we're training ourselves by sometimes engaging in physical acts, by engaging in the behaviors that invoke the mental states as well. But coming back to the theme, just to finish this talk off, coming back to the theme of this weekend, even in the most basic act of meditation, we are training and inclining our minds. We're training and inclining our minds towards that fundamental act of kindness, that fundamental act of acceptance. Yeah? Just as the, as, as the ground base level. When we engage in the formal practice of metta, as we're doing, both have done today and we will do tomorrow some more practice, we are learning to incline our minds in that way. So in a way you can drop often the pressure that seems to be there in this, which is to have those feelings. Yeah. By the end of tomorrow, says the promissory note, perhaps you should all be feeling friendlier and kindlier. I hope so. But, <laughs> the but is, I very much doubt it. <laughs> but what you may have learned is a new skill of being deliberately able to invoke and to remember at certain times to incline our minds in a particular way towards others, and particularly difficult others, yeah, and towards ourselves, yeah. and towards ourselves. And this changes things, it changes our relationship. One other quality about metta that's really important to mention and in this inclining of our minds, when we begin to do so, when we begin to move our minds in this direction, to have this trajectory, one of the things that starts to lessen because of its relational nature is self-obsession. Or, to put it the other way, obsession with self. Yeah. Often so much of our experience is fixated on self. <coughs> fixated on problems and concerns, almost neurotically so. Actually, from the Buddha's point of view, we're all hopeless neurotics. Yeah. Actually, I would say neurotics with hope, actually, rather than hopeless neurotics. <laughs> and the hope is that by engaging in these practices of which metta is one strategy, it's a strategy which can lead to this waking up process through this process of recollection that I've you know, talked about this evening, that engaging in this process repeatedly starts to diminish and lessen our fixation on self. Yeah. 
We use the self as a starting point, but it's not the end point. It's moving into those areas of difficulty. You know, moving through the categories, if you want to take this kind of rather artificial way of doing it, moving through the categories of that which is easier to that which is harder, the difficult person. Yeah. This changes our relationship with the world. It changes our relationship with ourselves. And it's actually fundamentally, and this is where I want to finish this evening, it changes fundamentally our relationship of caring. Because it doesn't become a caring for self as opposed to others. And I've spoken about that today, that often we're very, very under-resourced. Yeah, we're very, very under-resourced. We don't actually create resources that we can draw on, particularly, I think, if we have difficult existences, live in demanding relationships and demanding workplaces and the, the usual stuff of life. Often we're very, very under-resourced. So that's important, is resourcing and caring for ourselves, but also caring for others as a counterbalance. And I just want to finish with a quotation tonight, which I think puts this in perspective. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, developing it, and making it grow. How does one look after oneself by looking after others? By patience, by non-harming, by friendliness, and by caring. And I think the Buddha makes it very clear that it's not one above the other, but both together. Thank you. Okay. Let's take a short break, let's say 10 minutes, and we'll come back and do a final sit. Yeah, for those who wish to, do a final sit till 9 o'clock. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.